Hello there and welcome. Welcome to the uh, Room 6 podcast here at the Reading Room from Siren FM 107.3, uh, based in Lincoln. Although, uh, looking at our podcast statistics just lately and looking at, uh, there's this fantastic little thing you can look at and you can pin little pins around the world of, uh, of where people are downloading to us or, or streaming us online. So, hello, really, around the world and hello, a big uh, hello to our uh, growing, growing number of uh, listeners in North America. Hello, um, please, please email us, readingroom at sirenonline.co. UK. Let us know where you're listening uh, from. Let us know what you're reading. We really want to know what you're reading and what you think about it. Uh, coming up on this podcast, we have uh, the historical fiction author, Simon Scarrow, an uh, interview with him. Uh, Lincolnshire author, uh, GL Twynham, uh, she'll be giving us a reading from her uh, book, The 13th, and it's also a part of the series of 13th books. And uh, she'll also be uh, telling us uh, a lot more about those books and the characterization, things like that. Louis Malloy, uh, a short story writer uh, from the East Midlands, uh, he'll be uh, talking to us about writing short stories and also uh, will be providing a short story called Like Immigrants, excellent short story. And uh, also, of course, our Reading Room book group uh, will be discussing Maeve Binchy and Night of Rain and Stars. Uh, I hope you enjoy the podcast. I'll see you on the other side. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Now, our friend Jill at Waterstones invited me to a sign-in by the historical fiction writer Simon Scarrow. It's fair to say that he's absolutely charming. It was nice to see that he made time to speak to everyone and invited questions. And I think he'd done a talk in Sweden recently where no one asked him a question until they came to the sign-in. So uh, during the talk, he said, please, please don't be Swedish and uh, asked everyone's questions very well. And he looked very at ease talking to the audience. So I asked him if a previous career as a teacher had helped him when speaking in public. The teaching helps um, because I'll be honest with you, when um, before I started teaching, I was a bit nervous about getting up and talking in front of people. And teaching kind of beats that out of you quite effectively. Yeah. Um, very very quickly um, and after a while you know you just don't think about it yeah. and also I think you know because that's okay to a class of 30 you may speak in front of the whole school but with um, doing books and publicity and stuff sometimes it gets even, you know it gets slightly out of control because the biggest audience I've ever spoken to is about a quarter of a million and that was in um, Barcelona because they did this huge book festival every year and they were interviewing us authors on the um, on stage uh, for a radio station but then you have all these people out in front of you that was kind of weird because it was kind of intimate because there was a panel of you around the thing but you were constantly aware that there was this sort of sea of faces out there very very strange this this kind of event seems very important to you you obviously mm. connect very well you know sort of writing's a quite a, a solitary uh, oh yes event, but this yes. actually brings you in, in touch with your audience yeah I mean the thing about writing is it you know it, it is you and the laptop basically um, for several months of the year and it does get quite Lonely. I mean, don't you know? You, I don't want to overplay that because you are basically off with a lot of characters and, and, and conversations in your head. So it's like you're with people, but it, um, you know, it's there's no substitute for the real thing. Uh, now, the the Legion, uh, which is is the book you're here, uh, here to promote, is the the tenth book of the Eagle series, and you're still obviously very excited by the characters. How long do you think it'll it could go on for? There's no saying, because, I mean, one of the reasons I picked the first century AD is because, you know, there's hardly a year goes by when the Romans don't go out and do great violence to somebody somewhere around the Mediterranean. So I'm never going to be short of a plot. Um, and I, I wasn't joking when I sort of said that, you know, I'm, I'm likely to peg out before I get to the end of my, what I thought would be the end of the series, because I was thinking, you know, a dozen books, but we're already up to ten. I've got contract for three more. And I've got a list of plots from at least another eight. So yeah. you're obviously interested in, in classical history. Now, what, what first attracted you to the Roman Roman era? It was um, basically Latin teachers um, because I was never terribly good at the subject. But you know, when they stopped talking about all the grammar and stuff and started talking about the history, then I kind of completely tuned in. 
Um, and it coincided rather nicely with um, I Claudius was on television at the time, and you know there just seemed to be every weekend it seemed to be either Cleopatra, Spartacus, or Fall of the Roman Empire. So there's a lot of that kind of thing going on um, at the time. You know, I was first interested in in the, in the background, and it just sort of stuck from that day on, really. I see. I see. Now I know very little about. Roman history, uh, but I believe the way you write the books is, mm. is that you take the reader on the journey right from, you know, really by taking them on a learning experience. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's important. I mean, you know, you can just read the sort of dry histories, but I think what fiction allows you to do is kind of make it much more personal and upfront. Um, so it becomes, a, a, you know, you feel much closer to the kind of the history that you're reading about rather than if you read it as a kind of non-fiction. And we're here in Waterstones this evening now. We've also interviewed G.L. Twyner. Mm. And she was saying about the excitement of seeing a book on the shelves for the first time. Mm. Now, does, does that ever go away or is that...? No, I mean, every, every time a book comes out, it's, it's always the same kind of, you know, electric thrill and you see it sort of on the... Uh, just, particularly if they do well and they're kind of well promoted and all the rest of it and um, you just kind of think wow that, that's kind of all I ever dreamed of really yeah. when, when I started this whole thing and certainly one of the, uh, the I've obviously looked on your website uh, before meeting you today a superb website and one of the things that really thrilled me was the looking inside the factory of the creation of the books yeah, uh, yeah. and that was uh, your publishers uh, you tell yeah, us more I about that to, well I went down to the, the printers because you do stock signings for the publishers but um, on two occasions I've been down to um, you know, where they're actually being printed to sign the stock and I asked if I could have a sort of tour of the factory because, you know, it, it's all very well. There you are, the finished product. But it's kind of, okay, so exactly how do they put that together? And I thought, this is, this is fantastic. So I took a series of shots and then, um, you know, did a bit of narrative order and stuff to explain how things work. And I just think, you know, why not? I mean, it, I don't think I've actually seen it on any other writer's website. No, 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 it's not something I've seen before. No, I, love, I love anything like that. Uh, so your writing day, how, how would you set out your writing day? Is there a formula? There's no it? such thing as a writing day. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm not a very organised person. What tends to happen is I just think and think and think about a book. And then what I do is I hire a cottage um, on the coast near where we live and I will go away and write for a week solidly at a time. And that I can usually get up to a quarter of a book done in a week. Um, it's just relentless. I mean, up early, 2,000 words, have lunch, go, uh, another 2,000 words, go for a walk, another 2,000 words, dinner, 2,000 words. So, you know, you can really pack a lot in. Um, the most I've ever written is about 9,000 words in one day. But that was a long day. That was 9 o'clock in the morning till 4 the next morning, you know, without break. Yeah, so obviously that, that escape uh, can stop your procrastination, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it just flows and you just want to keep up with it. Yeah. Now, something I've heard various authors talk about before, and it really interests me, is the word kill. Um, kill off. I didn't want to kill off this yeah, person. I didn't yeah. want to do that. You know, there's a certain aspect of playing God in the writing process. There is. And I, I was brought up rather sharply about this um, by some kids at the school where I'm the writer in residence and they, I, they were saying well how's the series going to end and I sort of said you know either macro kills Kato or something like this and there was this horrified kind of outrage was, you can't do this to these characters and I said well I can because you know I've created them and they said yes but we kind of invested in them now so we're, you know it's wrong that you should do that and the reason why you know and this kid said to me this 13 year old kid I thought it's unbelievably kind of pers uh, you know perspicacious he sort of said look I know why authors do this sort of thing. It's because the readers actually like the characters more than the author. And he's right, because I was talking to Bernard Cornwall about this, and he's really peeved that the fan thing for the Sharp series is called the Sharp Appreciation Society. So why isn't it the Cornwall Appreciation Society? <laughs> and he's right, you know, the, the characters have a life of their own, and the readers are far more interested in them than the authors. And that's a good thing, I think, actually. Yeah. 
Now, you mentioned there uh, you're a writer-in-resident uh, mm. at, at a school. Also, you've got a young adult series starting. Is yep. that starting next year? Is it it is, in February next year for Puffin. Um, and that's about a young a boy who's kind of sold into slavery and then trains as a gladiator in Republican times. It's all about the time of Julius Caesar. So um, it's, um, we've had some really good feedback so far uh, from the... Because what Puffin do is they send these things out to schools and you know, they get the feedback quite quickly. Um, but also, um, Disney in America have bought the rights to it, so um, you know that should uh, be quite nice. And actually, is there, are there any conscious decisions you make to the you know the writing process of a, a book aimed at young adults? Well, the thing is, when I'm writing an adult series, I really don't think about the implied reader. It's just basically for me. Um, when I was writing the young adult series, I, I, I kept in my mind, okay, I'm, imagine I'm telling the story to my sons, and so the kind of the diction and everything became more appropriate to the way I addressed them. Superb. Thanks ever so much to uh, Simon Scarrow and uh, my great editing skills there uh, edited out my cooing and <laughs> I, was, I was genuinely bowled over by his charm. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Uh, now it's time to hear from the author of our Reading Room tea break this morning, uh, Louis Malloy. Now I started uh, asking Louis about using a pseudonym. My real name's Jeremy Galgut, which is a bit of a mouthful. People always have problems with the surname. Um, so that was basically the reason why I thought I'd adopt an alias because yeah. it's easier to spell. Whenever I say my name's Galgut, well, what? Gallagher? Yeah. Galbert, <laughs> yeah. And they can't spell it so I thought uh, let's make it easier for people and I'll, uh, I'll use an alias. Right, so it's uh, short stories that you that you focus on. Yeah. Uh, is that right? So where, where's the, where does the interest uh, come from uh, from short stories? Uh, is, is that where you find your, your talent for writing? Um, I write short stories. I've written a few novels as well, not published ones but uh, that's another branch that I'm uh, trying to go into but I've had more success with the short stories. I studied English at university years ago. I always used to put on my CV in the part where it says interests and hobbies writing short stories and I realised after a while I've probably only written about half a dozen in my whole life so I thought it was about time I started uh, (laughs) making good the boast. Um, So about probably about six or seven years ago I started writing in earnest and uh, yeah, I've written a lot. I've written, uh, written hundreds since then. So, yeah, mainly the focus has been on short stories, though, in the last few years. I've tried my hand at uh, novels as well, though that's uh, that's a different kettle of fish. It is, it is. I, I sometimes find the short story as, uh, as kind of little puzzle-solving ideas. Is, is, is that way, how you see them? Or It's hard to say where they come from, really. I'll have an idea, I'll write it down in a notebook, then I'll probably write about a paragraph of the shape of the story, And then I'll write it, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And it's very hard to know, I think, as with any kind of creative process, until you've done it, you've just no idea if it's going to work or not. Sometimes you think you've come up with a brilliant idea, and it it just doesn't doesn't fizz, doesn't work at all. I see. So Um, is that that something you gauge yourself, or do you have any outside input for that? um, When I started writing, I was part of an online writing group, which was very good, actually. I was part of that group for about a year, probably, and that involved submitting your stories and having them critiqued by the other people in the group and it was an excellent way to start very kind of harsh critiquing really but that's what you need you really don't need people saying yeah that's that's nice that's good you really need Mm. people to sort of take it apart and tell you why things aren't working so yeah to an extent for the first uh, first year or so of writing I had a lot of uh, feedback now it's really the feedback is really does it get published or not and <laughs> well, yeah. if it does you're doing something right if it doesn't you might be doing something right but you've just got to keep submitting it until you find somewhere that's going to take it but I'm not part of a group uh, anymore the online writing group I belong to a writer's circle or although we call ourselves a writer's triangle because there's three of us you would lose the, the social aspect mm-hmm. of it however that does focus then because these people have no uh, no preconceptions or no no exactly, way no, no yeah. you know they don't want to uh, satisfy you just you know no 
the the massive advantage of doing it on the internet it's a very good tool because we always submit it anonymously like you send a story to the secretary of the group and they put it up on this restricted site so you were anonymous so when people were critiquing they didn't know who it was so there's no chance of any kind of alliances and you know sneaky friendships yeah. being formed where it's okay you say something nice about mine i'll say something nice about yours and you could come out at the end when the critiquing finished you say yes this is mine which people usually did but that anon anonymity i think is essential actually because it means you're critiquing the text not the person because otherwise you know it can be quite hurtful for people to uh yeah. to have their critique it's quite a you know it's quite an open thing to write uh to write a, a piece of text and if somebody uh, slags it off you can feel like they're getting at you and just the fact that it's a creative endeavor and you've started off with a blank page you've produced a story it's all yours even if it's not autobiographical at all it's still all yours there's nothing else from anybody else there you mentioned the word blank page there is that something you ever have to uh, overcome yeah that's why i keep i think everybody keeps a notebook don't they i mean otherwise you sit down and you know, oh my god what am i going to write about and in a way it's difficult if you've got complete choice complete freedom that makes it more difficult to if you've just got a few ideas somewhere and you say right i'm going to write 500 words today on this i don't care whether they're any good or not i'm just going to do it and uh, yeah i'm very disciplined about what i do i keep a spreadsheet of the number of words i've written yeah. every day so at the end of the year i can total them up otherwise it's very easy to fool yourself and think oh yeah i've probably done quite well this year but in fact you haven't you know you've only written a few thousand words so yeah it's discipline and, and hard work i think that are get you over the blank page problem i saw simon scarrow recently a book signing and he was saying about just uh, you know that blank page thing just write write on it doesn't matter what it is just Absolutely. write on it yeah. yeah um so oh you've also mentioned quite a lot of success of being published i mean certainly when you sent through a uh, cv to me you know it's, it, it reads uh, very accomplished um so can you remember back to the, the first thing you had published and how you felt Yes, I can. I was still with the writing group at the time. I wrote a story. It was uh, it was about Elvis, actually. I'm a big Elvis fan. And about a singer called uh, Jackson C. Frank, who was a singer in the late 60s. It was mainly about him, actually. Elvis was a kind of sub-character. So it's a very American story. And I submitted it to uh, a place called Subway Lit, which was an interesting uh, kind of uh, place to get published, especially for your first one, because what they did was print these stories up on quite a nice little pamphlet, and they'd give them out on the New York subway, so they'd print up about 400 of them. And that was fantastically thrilling for me, because I love America, and the idea that you could just send a story through and people on the subway in New York were reading it. That was great. I was, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a thrill getting published. I mean, I have been published in quite a lot of places. None of them are hugely uh, famous, you know, and I'm not sort of getting paid huge amounts of money, but wherever you get published, even though most of them are fairly small literary magazines, it's always, uh, it's a big thrill, because that's really what... Uh, that's what you're doing it for. Yeah, and the short story, do you think there's a, do you think it could be marketed better? Do you think it could be a, a wider, you know, how could it reach a wider audience, do you think? I, don't, I think there's a lot of people who like short stories, um, but there's not that many publishers who will take them on unless you're an author who's already very well known. It's very rare for a writer who just writes short stories to get a, a publishing contract on the strength of those. Uh, and I don't know exactly uh, why that is, to be honest. I suppose that novels must just uh, sell better, you know, from a marketing point of view. Um, and I think people do, you know, there's various uh, schemes and uh, competitions and whatever to try and encourage the short story, to try and convince people that it's worth reading, and it is worth reading. Now, one of my favourite questions is the, the fact you're a writer, and you does it ever affect the, your reading, uh, for example? So you, can you lose yourself in, 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 a, in a story? 
Or, or are you always looking for style? Yes, I think sometimes, yeah, you can see the cogs going round when you're reading a novel or a short story, and then, oh, that's what he's doing. And that mm. kind of spoils it. But if you're reading something really good, I mean, the idea is to get submerged in it. I think that's the, uh, the sign of a good book, whatever genre it might be in. I think that's the sign of a good book. And yes, I think there are some books I enjoy less now, probably, than I would have done if I hadn't been a writer because I'm kind of critiquing it as I go along. But uh, when you come to a really good book, I think uh, you just lose yourself in that fictional dream. Great stuff. Thanks to uh, to Louis for that interview. Now, he got in contact with us uh, via our friends at Writing East Midlands. If you're a writer in the East Midlands region and you need some support, you could do much worse than get in contact with them, writingeastmidlands.co.uk. Uh, and they've put us in contact with uh, with lots and lots of writers uh, coming through, and we're kind of full up now with writers until uh, sort of spring next year, which is absolutely fantastic news. Lots of people being uh, very, very creative and, uh, and getting in touch with us. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Uh, now it's time for the tea break get those biscuits at the ready it's dunking time here's the reading room tea break stop shoveling that snow off the driveway for a while and relax this month we have a fantastic short story from louis malloy this is called like immigrants in october 1967 two men are standing at the entrance to the grill bar of the westover hotel waiting to be seated the man in the dark suit is my father the man in the sweatshirt and gray leather jacket is andy warhol The waitress is busy clearing tables for a few minutes, so my father turns to Andy Warhol, who he doesn't know or recognise. I didn't think it would be this busy at six o'clock. I thought New Yorkers ate later than this. My father smiles in a way that encourages a reply. He has a manner which makes people feel comfortable, which is why his company send him out to meet the clients. They eat at any hour, says Andy. My father, who is in America for the first time, nods in a way that makes it clear he's interested in this reply. I suppose there are a lot of people from out of town anyway, he says. He hasn't used the expression out of town before coming to America. There seem to be people from everywhere in the world in New York. Are you from here yourself? For a moment, it seems that he may have said too much, but then the other man smiles very slightly and offers his hand. No, I'm not. My name is Andy. Shall we share a table? My father's smile completes. I'm Ken Jeffers. Yes, let's share. Andy orders cocktails to start, a Manhattan for him, and an old-fashioned for my father. My father has never drunk a cocktail apart from a vodka and orange. Do you always stay here? No, says Andy. I've never stayed here before. Usually I stay in much worse places. He laughs for two beats, which I like much better. My father agrees with him, though he would have expressed it differently. It's by far the most expensive hotel he has ever stayed in, the kind that could diminish people. Normally he stays in small hotels in the UK, where nobody drinks cocktails and dinner is always served at 6.30. They look through the menu, and Andy orders a plate of tomatoes and cheese for himself, but recommends that my father should try a Waldorf salad at least once while he's in New York. The tomatoes and cheese are not on the menu, but this doesn't seem to bother Andy. They both order steak for the main course. Andy tells the waitress that he'll have his super rare. The two men sit back, look across the table at each other, and smile their different smiles. What line of business is it you're in, Andy? says my father after a while. I'm an artist. Oh, my father would look interested whatever the answer, but this does intrigue him. You paint, sculpt? He can't think of much else. I paint, I print, I do some other things. Do you paint? The question comes unexpectedly, and it's not what my father has ever been asked before. No, oh no. I mean, it's a very decent profession and very interesting, but I don't paint. Andy leaves pauses, which last at least five seconds, before he makes his replies. Never? 
Well, no, not since I was at school years ago. What did you paint then? My father looks up at a fan on the ceiling and then closes his eyes for a while. You know, it's so long ago, and I didn't do art exams or anything like that. This was when I was 11 or 12. He opens his eyes slightly and watches the light catch and fall on the blades of the fan. I did paintings of woodland scenes sometimes, with deer and snow. I did them in black and white. I don't know why. He laughs and looks down at the table. Do you have deer in England? says Andy. No. Well, maybe, but I've never seen one. My father laughs again. But what do you paint? All kinds of junk, says Andy. Oh, come on, you're a professional. I'm sure you must be very good. The subject is junk. That's what I mean. I paint junk. I see. You paint junk, but you paint it well. Andy shrugs as the waitress places his tomatoes and cheese in front of him. I just paint junk. There are a lot of unaccompanied women in the grill bar tonight. They are elegant and thin, and most of them smoke. Some are in pairs or groups, but others are by themselves. They read books or magazines at the table while they wait for their orders. They're in some kind of business, like you. Staying over for a few nights on business, says Andy when my father mentions it. They all look young to be away on business. Andy laughs. His laugh sounds like a combination of a cough and a laugh. They're in their twenties, he says. Bright women, twenty-two years old, earning plenty of money. Don't you get that in England? I suppose so, sometimes. But not so young, I don't think. Were you earning plenty when you were at their age? No, I'm not now, not plenty. My father eats his salad and makes approving noises, but adds plenty of salt. He looks up suddenly. I was picking potatoes when I was twenty-two. He goes back to his salad. I don't know why I'm mentioning that. Where? In East Anglia, in England. I just finished my national service. I picked potatoes in Poland when I was a teenager. I did it all the time. It's hard work. It's really hard work, says Andy, who has put down his fork. It makes your thighs and backache like nothing else. But the women, the old women, used to do it every day. Hours in the fields bent over. Jesus, it's hard work. And cold. In Poland, I would think so. For the rest of the time at the dinner table, the two men talk about potato picking, mainly about Poland. My father asks a lot of questions, and Andy is much quicker with his answers now, talking about his life as an adolescent, as if it's a story he's just discovering. When they have finished their dessert, my father looks around for the waitress. Do we have to tell her that we're going? Do we need to sign something? No, they've got your room number. Andy walks towards the door, and my father follows him, though he does manage to catch the waitress's eye and mouth his thanks at her. When they're out in the foyer, Andy says over his shoulder, Do you want to come for a drink? He keeps going towards the revolving door. Well, yes, says my father. But shouldn't I change, maybe? And he looks at his suit very briefly. No, I don't think you need to. So they go out onto the street, my father slightly breathless now, and they get into a cab. It swerves in and out of the evening traffic, and my father has no idea where they are. Andy doesn't point out any of the sights, not that it seems likely that there are any real sights on this route. They pull up on a poorly lit street, outside what looks like a warehouse. My studio's here, says Andy, as he pays the driver, but we can get a drink. They go through the doors into a very large, cool room with high windows. There is a crowd of maybe sixty people. They're young and many of them smoke, but they don't look anything like the young women in the grill bar. My father is the only person in a suit, and he and Andy are older than anyone else in the room. A small crowd comes together and glides towards Andy, shouting above the noise of rock music. Yeah, Andy. Hey, Andy. Andy. There seems to be no conversation beyond this, and Andy stares into the distance, but not at any person. He goes to the bar, and a girl with long black hair 
and heavily mascarad eyes gives him a bottle of beer. Andy makes a small motion with his head, and she passes one to my father as well. So what is this place? says my father. It's a kind of artist's environment, says Andy, who has gone back to leaving the five-second pauses before speaking. Excuse me a moment. He goes off into the crowd, and then he seems to disappear from the room. My father drinks beer and keeps the bottle up to his chest. No one is dancing, but people shake their heads to the slow thump of the music. For several minutes he stands watching and makes no attempt to join any of the groups or to start a conversation. Then a small man with a thick bush of hair and a thin moustache comes up to the bar. Nice suit, man, he says. That's a nice suit for New York City. You like it? says my father. Yes, a nice suit. Can I have it? They both grin without making it into a laugh. Then what would you wear? Yeah, what would you wear? The young man trails off and walks away from the bar. Over the next 15 minutes, my father has a number of these strange conversations, which lead nowhere and border on something he doesn't like. He drinks his beer, keeps a lookout for Andy, and turns back to the bar. Can I have another of these, please? He says to the girl with the makeup. She passes him a beer and shakes her head when he holds out a dollar. Andy, she says. He looks around, thinking that he has returned, but then realises that she means that being with Andy allows him not to pay. Oh, I see. He laughs and nods. The girl nods once and blows a smoke ring towards him with a kissing motion of the lips. My father drinks more beer and then Andy comes back into the room and slowly makes his way back towards him, stopping to listen vacantly to the greetings of small groups of people who line the way. Hi, he says when he makes it to the bar. He looks bored rather than tired. Anything happen? No, says my father. How do you mean? You had a good time? My father frowns. No, just a few conversations, short ones, rather odd ones actually. Andy smiles a little now. Okay. They stand there and people look around at them, or at least at Andy. There is no talking, and the music, which doesn't seem to have changed since they came in, is dull and fierce. I think I might leave, says my father. Need to be up early. Okay. Come up and see the gallery first if you want. Fine, let's do that. So they go up two flights of stairs, Andy with little sparrow skips, my father with heavy two-at-a-time steps. When they're at the top, my father looks sternly at Andy, in the way he sometimes looks at his boys. I found it rather strange in that room, uncomfortable. Andy's eyes grow suddenly wider behind the glasses, just for a moment. He doesn't speak for ten seconds, and then he shrugs. You did okay. Was it a test? Now Andy doesn't have anything to say, but he ushers my father through a set of double doors. They are in a studio which takes up most of this floor, and there are big pieces of art on the walls and stacked in the corners. My father follows Andy round and stares up at the pictures. Are they paintings? Some are. Some are screen prints. Some are just photos. He says photos in a way which makes him sound like an immigrant, a Polish immigrant. My father walks around some more and examines the works carefully, occasionally going back to one that he's already studied. Andy stands in the middle of the room and watches him. Then my father laughs, a short laugh like one of Andy's. What? calls Andy. He laughs too. What is it, Ken? Just this one. It's a painting of a pile of dozens of old bottles and cans. Why is it funny? It's not funny. I don't know. This is the modern world, isn't it? We consume and we throw away. Sometimes it's all we seem to do. Yeah, says Andy, closing his eyes and smiling. Yeah. He's like a ghostly preacher, and his smile is thin but strong. Well, says my father, it's all very interesting, but I think I'd better be going now. Do you want that painting? says Andy. Want it? It's yours if you want it. You get it. 
And I know that you're angry about me leaving you in the bar. Take the painting. Take it back to England. No, it's all right. You don't have to. But thank you. So there it is. My old man refuses a Warhol original because he doesn't need that big an apology and he's worked out already that it's an expensive thing to ship back home and because he can't really imagine it on the lounge wall above the settee with a green leaf pattern on a blue background. OK, well, let's get you a cab. They go outside. Andy raises his hand and a taxi just seems to appear like he's peeled a yellow sticker off of the night and smoothed it down right there in front of them. They shake hands. Will you be back at the hotel? No, says Andy. Probably not tonight. Right, then I'll say goodbye. Thank you for your company and for showing me your art. That was good, Ken. Good talking with you. See you around. The taxi rumbles off down the dark street and my father and Andy Warhol are still watching each other. There could be a slow but powerful spring mechanism that has to force them apart now. They watch each other through the light but frenzied rain and Andy raises his hand and waves a little. It's just a restless feeling by my side. Okay, it's time now for the Reading Rooms book group, and uh, it's December and it's uh, Christmas time. Uh, and for the past few years, I've been buying my mum a Maeve Binchy book, and I'm starting to get hints maybe that she'd not read the last couple. So don't worry, mum, you've got a different present this year. Um, and joining us uh, this morning, we've got uh, Jill Hart from Waterstones in Lincoln, Melanie Carroll from Unicorn Tree Books uh, in the Marketplace in Lincoln, and also uh, our reading room, a regular Stephen Lawrence English student at the University of Lincoln and the newest member of our team down here. Nights of Rain and Stars by Maeve Binchy, um, who Maeve Binchy, alongside uh, Joanna Trollope recently, uh, achieved a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Romantic Novelist Association. Now, that's a second Lifetime Achievement Award from them. I think the first time uh, she received that, she said she was going to quit writing because she had enough money. Um, there are some people who wish they were, but lots and lots of fans were very, very pleased uh, that she didn't. Uh, now, the book we've been reading, Nights of Rain and Stars, um, no, a number one bestseller, as they all are. Uh, let's go for a bit of the synopsis from the back cover. Four strangers meet in a Greek taverna high above the small village of Agia Anna from Ireland, America, Germany and England and they've each left their homes and their old lives when a shocking tragedy throws them unexpectedly together. Okay, now it's time to ask our guests what they thought of it. Jill, I'm going to come to you first. Mm-hmm. Maeve Binchy now. Uh, both our guests this morning, I had to, to twist their arms a little to come and read this Maeve Binchy book. Jill, what were your thoughts? Well, um, I think, first of all, it was lovely to read about some sunshine just at the moment. Yeah. I yeah. think, um, on a positive note, I think she writes place very well. I think she wrote the sun very well. I certainly felt a lot warmer reading the book. She does that very well. But I think the main thing is, Paul, that she's not writing for me and you. I think that's what you have to bear in mind when you're when you're looking at something like this she is writing romantic fiction which has got very strict formulaic traditions within which to write and I think it's for the great what we call the grey market it's for 
older ladies and I think she is is fulfilling her role in writing that type of fiction very adequately. It's not something I would read myself particularly, but then it's not meant for me. So yeah, I think I thought for for it was doing its job okay. very well. Okay, thanks. Now Mel, uh, when I came to see you, <laughs> uh, you pointed out, and I think as Jill pointed out, the large type well, in this. <laughs> yeah, a bit of a giveaway that this was not a book aimed at a younger audience. And and one of the things that threw me is the fact that the young people she's writing about, the oldest one is thirty four. Yeah. And all the while I'm reading it, I'm thinking, do you know? that doesn't read like a 34 or 28-year-old. It's like a memory of youth. Yeah. So I think very much, like you say, it is It is very much aimed at an older audience that I think would very much enjoy it. They do, they, they come and buy it. I have to be honest and say, I read it in one sitting, but that was because if I put it down, I know I wouldn't pick it back up again. I'm really sorry, all of you fans, but <laughs> I just found it very, you know, I, I did, I read it, I didn't skip a word. I was really proud of myself well because done. I wanted to. <laughs> but that said, it is, it's yeah. very formulaic. It's very romance genre. And it is older person romance because there's only one passing nod at a sex scene. Yeah. In it, you know. I think the underlying message that children are going to go back and look after their parents is mm. almost a little sinister. Um, sinister and hopeful, probably. From, <laughs> from uh, sort of somebody else's point of view. It was almost like being back to the Jane Austen book club, but, you know, without any twists or deviations yeah. of the social norm. I mean, I think the things that you get, you get racial and social stereotypings, mm. class stereotypings that are not, I think, particularly appropriate to somebody writing now. Yeah. It, it is looking back a long way. I mean, the language I, I felt was um, somebody's talking about um, Fiona talking about her best pal. It's like it, it's wartime yeah. dialogue. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas, to be, to be honest, there are people writing in this genre, like our local Margaret Dickinson, who writes in this genre, who I think writes better dialogue and better things in, in, in yeah. that way. I mean, one of the things I really wanted to pick up and comment is I spent the first five chapters trying to figure out whether what I was reading was a literary attempt at trying to show how languages don't work together. You know, how you can have a conversation with lots of people from different cultures and what you hear is this stop, start, stutter. Yeah. And then I realised that, no, that's just how it's written. It's written in very short sentences all the way through. And there's a, there's a lot of hiccuping and, and, like you say, language that just doesn't work. And I wasn't sure at first whether that was a deliberate yes, literary I device. And if it was, was a deliberate literary device... Fantastic, incredible author, because she hit the nail on the head. It was it was stutter start. It was like listening to conversations where people aren't quite sure of what they're saying and, and are using the wrong dialogue. And then I realised it wasn't, because even when she's writing the English person, even when she's writing the American person, even when she's writing the Irish person, or just descriptors, there's still this very short sentence structure. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it reads like a 400-page Mills and Boone. I'd, I have to be honest... I'd have rather read a 200-page Betty Neils really? because it reads the same. Okay, well, let's uh, let's just give the uh, listeners a, a bit of an insight. We're going to do an excerpt now from where the, the characters meet. They didn't order lunch. Andreas just served them. He brought them a salad with goat's cheese, a plate of lamb and stuffed tomatoes, and afterwards a bowl of fruit. They spoke about themselves and where they had been. None of them was a two-week package tour visitor. They were all in it for the long haul, several months at least. Thomas, the American, was travelling and writing articles for a magazine. He had a year off, a proper sabbatical from his university. He said that they were much sought after, a whole year with their blessing to see the world and broaden his mind. Teachers of every kind needed a chance to go out and talk to people of other countries, otherwise they would get caught up in the internal politics of their own university. He looked somehow a little far away as he spoke, Andreas thought, as if he were missing something back in California. 
It was different with Elsa, the German girl. She seemed to miss nothing she had left behind. She said she had grown tired of her job. She realised that what she had once thought was important was now in fact shallow and trite. She had enough money saved to finance a year's travel. She had been on the road for three weeks and never wanted to leave Greece. Fiona, the little Irish girl, was more uncertain. She looked at her moody boyfriend for confirmation as they spoke of how they wanted to see the world and find somewhere to settle where people wouldn't judge them, want to improve them or try to change them. Her boyfriend said nothing either to agree or disagree, just shrugged as if it was all very boring. David spoke of his wish to see the world while he was still young enough to know what he liked and maybe join in. There was nothing sadder than an old man who found what he was looking for decades too late. Someone who had not shown the courage to change because he had not known what opportunities for change there were. David had only been a month on the road of his discovery. His mind was filled with all that he had seen. There we go. Uh, an excerpt uh, I read out from uh, Maeve Binchy, Nights of Rain and Stars. Now, I wasn't particularly looking forward to this one, I have to say. But I completely surprised myself. And for the first half of the book... I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed this escapism. And you were right, Gillian, when she says uh, she writes places well. What nicer thing to write about at the minute, or sorry, read about, uh, would be sunshine. You know, uh, that escapism uh, was, was was perfect. But I, recently we had uh, a romantic novel writer on called uh, Sue Moorcroft, and she talked about the, the problem of a saggy middle, <laughs> which uh, is, is, is a problem. And this completely had it. She completely lost me in the middle, really. Uh, the conflict, the inevitable conflict between uh, some of the main characters just frustrated me. Um, but also, also I mean, they're just having Barneys with everyone, and it didn't, didn't really sort of go anywhere for me. And the ending, the ending, there's somewhere I've flown to, and I can't remember where, which is daft, because I've not flown that many places. I'm not that well-traveled. But there's an airport where it takes around about an hour on the descent it takes just takes so so long and that's what this felt like at the end it almost felt like it was happening in real time uh, i don't know <laughs> it was it, it was an inevitable ending wasn't it mel it, it was i mean i'm sorry i don't mean to be nasty but i do it so amazingly well so i might as well carry <laughs> on the ending was trite it's just so formulaic and so trite actually it's a sad ending because to be fair although it seems like i'm really negative about the book some of the concepts in the book, you know, how, how it starts and this whole idea of, of how we can't see our own problems, but we can see other, other people's problems and how we don't apply what the rules that we give to them to ourselves. Those are really strong concepts. And, and even towards the end, she sort of redeems herself by the letters that get sent back to Vani and, and people's, real, you know, you begin to see people's realisations of their situation. And the ending could have been so much better. And instead, she, she goes with what for me is the trite romantic end. Everyone's sitting hands together, romance off in the distance, and everything's going to work perfectly for, for those that are in love or have those that love them. What I think she, di- she did, do, which I thought was maybe not what I was expecting, is the characters that had gone and got away, like the son that had got mm-hmm. away from the unpleasant parents, was sent back again. And so there were things that I, I thought she was trying to do in order to make it nice for parents. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was quite cruel to that character. You know, I think I, the, yeah. the plot didn't stand up in keeping all the characters fully three-dimensional. No, I think, I think so. It's very much a book written for mm-hmm. parents and about how, how children, in effect, um, how, how parents Belong bond to. with their children. Because there's a big bit in it where um, Thomas is talking about his relationship with his son. And it's this whole thing about how parents bond with their children. And, and the feel that you get is that is therefore children must reciprocate at a later date. 
which of course is yeah. not true and doesn't happen in the real world. No, no this um, is it. And, and yeah, that, that does filter very much through it. And for me, I the thought ending. the character of Vonnie was she was sort of an ancient mariner figure telling her story all the way through to warn all the tourists to arrange their lives in a better manner. And I thought. A lot of ways as a novel, it didn't work. But I'm mm. sure it obeyed the rules of what she of, was putting forward. Yeah. I think the beginning was the strongest part with the fire, which um, brought all the disparate characters together. Mm. So that was a good device that worked there. It was very um, Agatha Christie, the beginning, I thought it was. <laughs> all the all the mm. strange, all the people brought all together. The strangers thing. getting together and um, bonding. I think there are I think there are people that do it better. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Now we're going to come to some emails that have been sent in uh, from other members of our reading group. Uh, Cheryl Cliff, uh, now she's not really written a review on it um, and the only word I can read from it is one word and you'll like this word, twaddle. Um, and that, that's it, I'm leaving the rest of that alone, Cheryl. Thank you very much for your contribution. And Cathy Hogan, regular emailer to us, thanks ever so much for your contributions this year, Cathy. Uh, this book, though set in a Greek village, is more about the characters than soaking up the atmosphere of the Greek way of life. It's about regret, tragedy, love and loss, and the story unfolds. It shows how people's lives change and the impact on them as friendships are made. I found this a typical Maeve Binchy novel, light and easy to read, but did not light up my world. I recommend it as a holiday read. And uh, again, this morning, joining us, uh, Stephen Lawrence. Stephen, uh, what did you make of it? What were your thoughts? I found it extremely hard to get into. However, I can see the appeal of it being a sort of holiday novel for those going away on a summer break, as that's what it's essentially about. Although as much as Brinchy has produced the novel encompassed with human interest that revolves through a paced plotline, I just found that it lacked depth, particularly in the characters. I found them to be fairly two-dimensional and relatively shallow, and the plot means that they're restricted from having an objective view of one another. And often, to me, it appeared that the conversations that took place between these set of characters seemed to be forced and contrived. Um, Nevertheless, I don't want to seem too critical of the book as much as it, I could not get into it. I can see the appeal for many others who like this genre. As with any book, one person may like it whilst another may not. As Binchy depicts the setting of Greece vividly and for others the plot may appear poignant and moving. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm gonna, you're the only person in this room I'm going to ask their age today. How old are you, Stephen? 18. 18, yeah. I don't think this is aimed at you. No. <laughs> I think it's fair to say. No. But it's great, it's great to have your uh, insight there because you, you read in English at, uh, Link, yes. at Lincoln University so it's good, it's good to have that uh, contribution. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Now it's time to come to local author uh, GL Twine and she popped into the studio last month and recorded an interview uh, which we'll play in a few minutes time but first we thought the best way to introduce you to the 13th series of books was to hear a bit from the first chapter of the first book. Chapter 1. The Tattoo. A young woman stood alone looking up at the night sky a cool breeze effortlessly caressing her slim frame as darkness closed around her. At long last, it would be her turn to be part of something that had been her destiny since birth. She moved on, passing the pond. She caught a reflection in the water and smiled. The time had arrived. The moon had reached the top of the trees. And on this particular evening, the shadows of the dense woods mixed with the bruised sky made the adventure that lay ahead seem all the more exciting. As she left the village behind and made her way into the woodland, her body filled with anticipation, she began to run. Knowing instinctively where to go, she weaved like a needle in and out of the undergrowth, dodging the trees as if they were merely smoke trails rising in front of her. She was moving swiftly when an unfamiliar sound stopped her dead in her tracks. 
A strange crackling in the air made every hair on the back of her neck stand on end. Something was very wrong. She spun around, trying to find where it was coming from, but soon realised it was everywhere. Then as suddenly as it started, it stopped. She had cautiously started to move forward again when the silence was shattered once more by another wave of sound. In the confusion, her foot caught under a loose tree root, causing her to fall awkwardly into a pile of leaves. Before she had time to stand up, she heard violent screams coming from the distance. These weren't joyful cries, the cries of pleasure and happiness that she'd been expecting. These turned her blood cold and left her paralysed where she lay on the wet forest floor, her heart pounding. After a few seconds, she gathered enough courage to slowly lift herself up and move forward again. She was suddenly very frightened, aware of the risks she had taken just by being there. She darted to an old oak tree, hiding for a moment in the shelter of its huge trunk. Cautiously, she edged around it. Everything was quiet again, so she leant the top half of her body out to see if it was safe. In that split second, a ball of light came towards her, travelling at amazing speed and growing as it came, until it seemed to be the size of a mountain. When it hit her, its power engulfed her whole body and she was instantly lifted off the ground. She screamed helplessly as it raised her into the treetops. Her ears filled with a piercing noise like nothing she'd ever heard before. Her whole body felt like it was burning up, yet still she kept rising and rising until she was high above the trees. Then the light and noise stopped as quickly as it had started. Her upward flight came to a violent halt and she began to fall. As she tumbled through the trees, the thick branches scratched aggressively at her clothes and face. The ground came towards her at terrifying speed. The scream that had struggled to escape her was silenced when she hit the ground with tremendous force. Her body filled with pain, the taste of warm blood filled her mouth and she slipped into unconsciousness. Now, Georgia was kind enough to donate a copy of both her books, The 13th and The Turncoats, uh, to the reading room, and you'll all be pleased to hear I've grabbed those, uh, which is signed for us, and uh, I've read the first book and absolutely loved it, and I can't wait to read the second, which I think is going to happen this week. Now, to tell us more, here's the first part of our interview. The first thing I wanted to know was about using her initials as an author name. I just thought that Georgia Twine sounded fluffy, and I didn't want the book to look fluffy. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't, I like my name if my mother's listening to this. Um, but it just didn't feel right on the cover. It just didn't look right on the cover, so we just swapped and changed. We did put it on at one point, and we took it off, and we swapped and changed it, and it just looked better yeah. as G.L. Twynham. Yeah, so we'll, we'll actually, while we're talking about the cover, we'll carry on and talk about the covers. Uh, from the 13th series, uh, the first book is the 13th, and you've just released... Is it Turncoats or The Turncoats? The Turncoats. The Turncoats, okay. Yes. Yeah, they're quite uh, quite specific symbols on the covers. I can't tell you what they are. Okay, and that, but so that's it's, it's not just something that you've, you've grabbed no, off Google like images. A random image you know oh, I just think I'll stick that on the front no it has a significance in the story and obviously the new books only just come out so a lot of the people will be desperately reading to find out what the new symbol means and and it is important right. so they are they are so only the people who've read the book would understand what they mean yeah but it's like being part of a special club and the covers do look great is that something I mean you're a self-published author yes I am. so is it the uh, did you design the cover yourself yes I did we created the cover myself and my partner um, and we created about 20 different covers originally and we put the number 13 on the front and we found that parents didn't like it they said they wouldn't pick a book for their child with the actual number 13 on it so we decided to change that I then put an image of a girl's shoulder on the front with the tattoo on it and um, most people mistake that for a bottom <laughs> which was really random so we took that off and then we ended up and I said look this symbol nobody knows it it could be like our logo you know when, when you you would only know what that means when you see it so yeah it's really really worked extremely well and it just pops on a shelf 
you walk past a shelf full of books and you can see it from a mile away. Yeah, yeah, it does stick out. It does stick out. What I was thinking last night, though, as I've looked at, uh, you've got the black and white, and then you've yeah. inverted the black and white for the, yeah. the turncoats. And I'm thinking, well, yeah. where, where are you going to go for number three? <laughs> yes, no, it's all number three. Actually, strangely enough, has already been planned. Number two was a last minute thing, and I just, I was, sort of, I couldn't even think of a title. And it was only a couple of months before the book came out that I actually came up with the title. Whereas book three is instant. I knew the name of the book, what the design was going to be like, and everything. So book three sorted. Mm. And actually, uh, the thirteenth is part of a, a six part series. Yes. Where about so you actually now in in writing that series i've already started on number three numbers four five and six have already been mapped out mm-hmm. so i know exactly the sort of pages of notes on those books and storylines that have to happen now that will drag on through the other stories and through the other books you know it's all got to be pretty well planned if you're gonna hit people with shocking shocking facts you've got to have it really well planned yeah. so it's it's pretty well planned up to the end and that planning process, I mean, this is what I was going to ask you later, but that, that, that planning process, how does that take place? Does it take place in your mind or is that too much? Or is, have you actually got a physical board or, you know, how's your, how's your writing room set up? It's my handbag right. most of the time with a pad and a pen in. And then I rip pages off and I put them into folders. What I tend to do is I make sort of a simple page plan for the whole book. This is what's going to happen. This is where it's going to start. This is where it's going to end. And these are the characters that are involved and this is what they've got to do. Then I start to build on that and I build and build and build. And then information will come from that. Then I think, oh, actually, that needs to be, I need to check and book one to make sure I've got the right person in the right place and then I need to move on. So it's quite intricate, but I don't have a specific place to work. I'm a bit of a, a gypsy or a nomad when I'm working. I can work anywhere because I have a child. Yeah. So I can work at in a farm barn or I can work in a coffee shop or I can work, you know, sitting in the car waiting for her to finish school. Yeah. So you don't have a set, I mean, a lot of authors have a, a set writing day where they might perhaps get up in the morning and write and then, you know, do other things throughout the day yeah. and that kind of thing. But obviously... Those lucky that, people, yeah. 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 Gosh. <laughs> I'm just so jealous. Yeah. No, I just do it whenever I can and sometimes I'll write for 10 hours because I can and other days it will just be note-taking and questioning and I ask myself loads of questions all the time. You know, well, if this character did that, why would they do it? I like to be the one person that asks all the questions so that when I actually write it, I can answer any question. Yeah. Um, and there's one thing I hate, it's sort of incontinuity. So you think, well, just a minute, how can they do that? You mm. just said they couldn't do that. Mm. Why are they doing that? So I ask myself lots and lots of questions. I suppose being, being able to write anywhere is handy because obviously you're doing a lot of promotion and publicity as well yourself, yep. being self-published. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, but although you do have an agent now, don't you? Is that I do. I have a lady in London who's doing the sort of the big publishing houses, that side of things. That's what she's working on because obviously I couldn't even probably get in the front door without two lattes and a tray. <laughs> <laughs> Coffee. Yeah, no. So um, that's what she's doing at the moment, trying to get a big publisher in, in, interested, involved, film companies, things like that. And when, when I first published the book, that was more of a, if people like it, great. If they don't, oh well, you know, just another thing that I've done. But I couldn't not write all six books. So I know I was going to have to carry on. Mm. Now it's just crazy mad. You know, it's just crazy. There's, there's children and there's adults that are fans. We've got the Facebook fan site. We've got the website. I'm constantly being contacted by people. And now it's turned around. After a year of promoting myself, it's now them calling me saying, can you come here? Can you do this? Can you do the other? Which is fantastic because it shows that a year of hard work is starting to pay off. Would I like to be the next J.K. Rowling and Stephanie Myers? Yes. I wouldn't like to lose the freedom to go in and see the kids in schools. I think that would be a really hard. And one of the children actually asked me this week when I was working, you know, would you always be able to come into schools? And I, and I said to her, you know, hopefully, secretly, yes, always, because that's, this, that's the most fun out of everything. 
and I love writing, but going and sharing ideas and inspirations and having children's parents come up to you, like one did on Saturday, and say to me, you've inspired my daughter, thank you so much. Nothing yeah. could be better, you know, absolutely nothing in the world. Yeah, I was looking at the relationship you have uh, with, with your fans on the 13th uh, book, and you do put, obviously put a lot of work in there. It's mm. a very, very good, positive relationship, and that, you know, that obviously uh, leads to that kind of interaction. And, yeah, uh, you know. and, and who could they have that with? You know, there's, there's so many big authors that they, they, they respect and they would like to be in contact with, which they can't. Mm. They just can't do it, and those authors can't because they're very busy and all this. I'm still in the privileged position where if I meet a child in a school and they come onto Facebook and they say, hello, I saw you today, I can go, hello. You know, I've had a good day at school. Did yeah. you enjoy it? And, and they can still interact with me when they've bought the book. They can still say, oh, I like the book or this and that and the other. So that's a, it's a real privilege to be in that position still. You're in Waterstones uh, books. Yes. And one thing I was looking at on your website was the uh, the pictures of your books in, on the shelves in Waterstones. Oh, yeah. And what I was going to say is the first time you saw that, how did you feel then? I cried. Yeah. My friend, was it was a shock really because we kept watching the high street to see if they'd got it on the shelf. And we actually went down to the corner exchange and asked if they'd heard about the book. And Chris, one of the booksellers, sort of said, yeah, it's over there on the shelf. And I was like, I beg pardon? <laughs> it's like, it's over there on the shelf. And I went, oh, I just stood there and like, I just burst into tears. And then the girl who was watching me said to me, are, you know, are you okay? And I was like, that's my book. And she went, if you sign a copy for me now, I'll buy it. And I was like, yeah, okay. Yes, let's do it. And that was, it was just amazing. And she actually came on Saturday to buy the second book. Wow. And I just, as soon as I saw her, I was like, oh my goodness, it's you. And it, it's just great. Yeah, but it was very emotional because you work so hard. I don't, I think people just assume that you will automatically get onto those shelves. And you can't, you know, it's just not that simple. So what was your what was your process about getting your book on that shelf? I forced people to buy my books through stores rather than me selling them myself, which seems crazy because if I sell them myself, I make more of a profit. But I wanted the bookstores to notice me. And so loads of people were supporting me. And they're saying, you know, where do we get your book from? And I'm like, you have to order it through Waterstones. And so they all went into the stores and started ordering them all over the country. And um, it just took off from there. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Uh, now it's time for the second part of our interview with G.L. Twynham, who tells us about our main character, Val Saunders. Val is, uh, Val's name, Val Saunders, comes from my mum, who's called Valerie Sanderson, or was called Valerie Sanderson. Um, and Val Saunders is the character that I always wanted when I was a child. I was a big superhero fan of Star Wars, Flash Gordon, all those sort of things. But they were always boys, you know, um, Spider-Man, Batman, the Hulk. We got, like, Wonder Woman. <laughs> yeah, I was just about to say, come on, you had Wonder yeah, Woman. Yeah, we got a woman with a see-through plane and a lasso of truth. Yeah. You know, which was, was nice, but it wasn't what I was looking for. And I just felt like, in England, we didn't have a, a strong female character um, of that type. And I wanted the girls to grow up thinking, well... Do you know what? I can be the main character. There are as many male characters in the story as there are female, and the boys that read the books thoroughly enjoy them. I think they quite like the idea of a girl getting, you know, thrown off buildings and stuff like that and, and beaten up a little bit um, in a nice, positive way. Yes, yeah. Yeah, of course. But, yeah, that's what I wanted. I wanted to see this character. I wanted to see a British girl, really strong, you know, character just leading the way. The, the fluidity of it, the way it flows, would be attractive to any nationality, I think. Yeah, and also, actually, I mean, as a, as a man myself, I, I, I can actually see the attraction of a, of, of a strong female lead. Yeah. Uh, just so you can uh, you can maybe understand what's you know, going on in, in, in a female's in a, mind. Yeah, yes, exactly. What would my girlfriend do if she had superpowers? Oh, dear, right, okay, yeah. yeah. I must be more careful. <laughs> 
being part of the writing process, does it actually change the way you read? Can you get lost in a book? Or it probably depends on the strength of the book, but uh, can you still get lost in a book and not look at technique and style? Yeah, I don't. Never have done. No. Never have. I mean, you've got to take into consideration that I have never been to a creative writing class. I've never, you know, studied English literature. I haven't gone down the route that most people would expect an author to go down. Um, I'm one of these strange, random people that just goes, oh, I think I'm going to write a book and I've got a really good idea and I just can't stop myself and I've written a book. Then I got help and assistance. I got the book assessed and I got an editor and I got loads of people on board to help me. But I wouldn't even know where to start to tell, you know, to read someone's book and go, oh, I just, just like their prose. I, I, I just read for the pleasure of reading. Mm. I don't have that. And I think sometimes it's good because I'm free. You know, I'm completely free. I don't think, well, that's right or wrong. I just write. Okay, and the assessment, how did you go about getting the assessment? Where's that? Where, where I, do you get that from? Well, I'd, I'd sort of got halfway through the process and I felt that although my mum loved it and my friends loved it and my partner loved it and some children loved the story, I needed somebody from the outside who didn't love me or want to make me happy to tell me exactly what they thought of my, my manuscript. So I found a lady called Chris Sawyer um, in the Writers and Artists Yearbook and sent it off to her and it came back with like this 20-page report and... Uh, it was interesting to see somebody's impartial perspective on the book and them saying, you know, well, actually, this doesn't work and that doesn't work. This is wonderful. Stick with this. It was really worth every penny. We had Michael Blackburn in, who's a lecturer at the university and a poet. And he's under the impression that the novel is dead as a form, really, because it sometimes gets so formulaic. I mean, we, did, do you ever worry when you send it off to an assessor or an editor, perhaps, that they're going to make it you know, be like everything else? I think it depends who you work with. I have a really good relationship with my editor, really good. And she knows that I want to keep my voice. And if it doesn't sound like me, then I'll change it back, whether I think it's right or wrong. Um, I take her advice and I will, you know, take on board everything that she tells me because she's the professional in that, in that area. But it still has my voice. If somebody takes your voice away, then that's not editing, that's mm. rewriting almost. Great stuff. Thanks ever so much for joining your time there. And uh, the 13th is available from the following major retailers. And if you're in the UK, uh, Waterstones, and I've just been told uh, by Jill here in the studio uh, that Waterstones in Lincoln has signed copies. That's on the high street, into Jill? Yeah, on the high street. Signed copies of both the 13th and Turncoats. Uh, you can also get them from Amazon, WH Smiths. Or if you're one of our growing numbers of listeners in the USA, hello to you, uh, you can buy it from Barnes & Noble, uh, the tour.com store, and of course, Amazon.com. Uh, for more information, you can visit her brilliant website, the 13th. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Thank you for listening to Room 6, the Room 6 podcast here from The Reading Room at Siren FM 107.3. You can listen uh, live online the first Sunday of every month on sirenonline.co.uk. Uh, we're just in the process of knocking up the next uh, book list um, from Lincolnshire Libraries to review. Uh, we've had a meeting about it, and I've got to tell you that the uh, book list for 2012 looks absolutely superb. Uh, there's something there that I'm really looking forward to, and also ones that the exact, I mean, the idea about a book group is that you read the books that challenge you and push you in different directions, and uh, I hope we've done that over the last six months, and uh, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.